Older men have been predating upon young women since the dawn of time, you know, and that social mores around it are what have changed, you know. But I don't think that it's any less damaging. I don't think that, you know, as mature as girls are, and especially girls of our generation, again, who were being sort of over-educated and left to their own devices, right? So we had a lot of information, but not a lot of supervision that the, the girls of our generation, because we came of age in that moment and now we are in our maturity in this moment, are able to parse their experience and frame it in a way that my mother's generation couldn't, my great aunt Frances's generation couldn't, you know. It's just the social mores have changed so much. And thank God. Thank God, because I don't think it was ever okay. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. If you listen to this show a lot, you've probably heard me talk about the idea that growing up in the 1970s and 80s, for girls especially, had something about it that was uniquely liberating. The way I've looked at it, we were beneficiaries of many of the achievements of the women's movement. This, after all, was the era of the famous free-to-be-you-and-me children's record, the Marlo Thomas Project, which sang about girls growing up to be plumbers if we wanted to, and boys having dolls if they wanted to. And even though there were plenty of hypersexualized images of women all around the popular culture, they weren't wallpapered over the culture the way they are now. They were confined pretty much to magazines, a few TV channels, and a few R-rated movies. But there was a darker side to that time, too, for girls and young women. As much as feminism was on the ascent, the sexual revolution was always a few steps ahead and was profoundly reshaping norms of behavior and assumptions about what constituted healthy human interaction. Part of those assumptions were that children, girls especially, could handle sexual information and even sexual activity just as well as adults. That, along with a common parenting style often referred to as benign neglect, meant that a large portion of an entire generation grew up not only left to their own devices, but as my guest Erica Schickel describes in her new book, acting the role of adults while the adults, in their own way, acted like teenagers. The Big Hurt is Erica's memoir of growing up in a particular version of this world. It's one where she and her friends ran free through their neighborhoods in Manhattan, and Hollywood casting agents visited her private school with the blessings of the headmaster looking to fill the role of the child prostitute in the film Pretty Baby. And that school, incidentally, was where, at the time, there was a very popular math teacher named Jeffrey Epstein. The book is both a wry homage to that time and a damning indictment of it. The daughter of two successful working writers, Erica describes a world where sophistication and narcissism were forever entwined. At boarding school, she was seduced by a male teacher and asked by the administration to leave. Still, her mother applauded the relationship, and Erica and the teacher even lived together for a time. Decades later, while living, or as she would say, playing the role of a conventional married mom in Los Angeles, 
Erica found herself embroiled in an obsessive, ultimately destructive affair with the legendary crime writer James Elroy, a man who was himself damaged by the violence and tragedy of his youth. Erica spoke to me about this story, and there's even more to it than all of that, and what she realized over the more than 10 years it took her to write the book. During those years, the Me Too movement came along, and Erica's story is both a case study in the Me Too message and a complication of it. I will say that because of the rather discursive nature of this conversation, some of the details of the James Elroy relationship did not make it into the final cut. It's not that we purposely skipped over them, but for the sake of structure, I thought they were better left for the book itself. So if you're curious, you should just go read it. In the meantime, here's my conversation with Erica Schickel. Erica Schickel, welcome to the podcast. Megan Dom, I'm so happy to be here. You have a lot of memorable lines, but one that jumped out at me in particular was this one. You say, writing a memoir was like trying to describe the ocean I was drowning in. And I think a lot of people who write about their lives could probably relate to that. Do you feel like you are safely on the shore of that ocean or will it always be a body of water in which you are submerged one way or the other? Um, I think our, our biographies, you know, our past is the body of water that we try to swim through and not drown in all the time. Um, you know, and people process trauma in different ways. And for me, I wrote this book, you know, I used write the writing of the memoir as a way, as a life raft, really getting up every day and going to the library and trying to write kept me alive while all these events were happening. And while it's true, there were some things that I could not describe because I was still in the midst of them. I just would assign myself to work on pieces of the book that I understood in that moment, like things from the distant past. I wrote all the early boarding school stuff before I could write the middle age stuff because all that stuff was still happening. So, right. Well, there's this kind of meta thing that happens in the book, which is that, you know, this relationship that is takes place in your contemporary life. That's very central to the book is, is predicated on your being in the middle of writing this book. (laughs) Right. So, so this man that you're involved with, and we're going to talk about him is someone who reads an early draft and he's going to help you. And you're talking about this very project. And I'm sure you didn't know at that time that he would end up being part of the the project in and of itself. Let's just kind of run through this. So you were writing a book about uh, your, something that had happened to you, particularly in boarding school, but just, you know, there was there was one sort of central wound in your life that it yes. caused a ripple effect of, of many of the events in the book. And so we're going to talk about that. But you uh, were in the middle of this as a grown up woman. You're living in Los Angeles. You, mm-hmm. you're, you're a mom. You're married. You've got two kids. And you get involved with a man who you call Sam Spade. Uh, mm-hmm. That's a fictionalized name for a non-fictional mm-hmm. person. Do you want to tell us about him? Yeah, um, sure. So uh, the, the the man in real life, and I, I'm open about this because it, it's a, it's the stupidest Google search 
you can ever do. You know, I mean, just <laughs> that's saying a lot. Names, this, a stupid Google name. searches are not. Uh, there's no scarcity of stupid <laughs> Google searches. This one is so dumb easy, I wouldn't believe it. But um, so I, you know, it's James Elroy, and I, you know, I, I call him Sam Spade for a few reasons. I didn't want to call him by his name because. Famous people have a way of sucking all the air out of the room. And I didn't want that to happen in my book because the book is not about him. It's about me. And he's had many books about him, many of which he's written. And I just, I didn't want my reader to get dwell on the James Elroyness of it because that was the smallest piece of our alliance, you know, his fame and his mm-hmm. literary achievements, you know. We were, uh, we were exercising our souls on each other. You know, this was a really weird, deep assignment. Um, and it just so happened that he was, you know, the famous James Elroy. But what drew us together was far more powerful than that. And I didn't want my reader to be distracted by it. This book is about a lot of things. It's about, it's about that relationship, but really it's about sort of the benign neglect that I think we can say was a dominant parenting style in the seventies and the eighties. It's about creativity. It's about sexuality, female precociousness, intellectual, sexual, and otherwise. I, I, one of the things that I loved about this book was just the way you took us into that world of adolescence, childhood and adolescence in the late sixties, seventies into the early eighties for, for people who are kind of in the culture today and obsessing about various things going on now, or, and certainly people who grew up, you know, who were born maybe 20, 25 years ago, I think they would be shocked to, to see just how people comported themselves back then. So tell us about this world. You grew up in New York city in the seventies, basically. Mm -hmm. And what was it like to be a kid and a teenager then? Well, uh, I was the daughter of two writers, um, Richard Schickel, the Time Magazine film critic and film historian and author and et cetera, et cetera, was my dad. And my mom, Jill Whedon, was a novelist. And um, my whole family, especially on my mother's side, is all writers. So it was a, it was a writing world that I grew up in, a book world. On the Upper East Side of Manhattan, um, which back then, you know, I had a very privileged upbringing. And, and one of the things I try to illustrate in the book is that sort of the privilege of the 70s and 80s is very different from the privilege of today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, New York in the 70s was, first of all, there was still an upper middle class in those days, um, which is what my family was. We were upper middle class. We were not wealthy. There was no inherited money in my family. Uh, the money came from my dad meeting deadlines. Yeah. Working, working, writing, writing all the time. And he was prolific. Um, and it paid for my fancy education at the Dalton School. Um, again, <laughs> he got me into that school because he wrote an article for the New York Times, for the Sunday Times, about Donald Barr the principal at that time. And that's how he got me ahead on the list of all the other sort of richer, more well-connected 
kids into the school. Right. So he so, did I that and he did that end run that so many of us do when we can't uh, when we we don't have the money or, you know, in some <laughs> cases the credentials to get somewhere, yes. but we kind of like, you know, write a story about somebody or Exactly. Uh, so but it, let's uh, to be clear, so for listeners who don't know, the Dalton School is a very elite private school in Manhattan. It's also so Donald Barr, who was the headmaster of that school, is the father of Bill Barr later became the attorney general. It's also a place where Jeffrey Epstein was teaching mathematics. Was that at your time? Where, yes, did you have was. him for a math teacher? I, I remember Mr. Epstein vividly. No, I never had him for math. I was never good enough for his math class. But I remember <laughs> him walking the hallways. I mean, he was beloved by the students at the school. He was like the cool teacher. This is fascinating because you actually don't talk about this that much in the book. No. So no, is, was that, is that on purpose? Um, you know, the book is so stuffed with stuff right? that there were things that I just was like, I cannot, I can't put it all in and talk about all of it. Um, but you know, yeah, that school, one of the other things I mentioned in the book is that Mr. Barr <laughs> allowed talent scouts for Louis Mall to come and visit all the classrooms in middle school looking for a young girl to play the prostitute in Pretty Baby, which was <laughs> at the time, you know, a really big deal. Um, you know, and it the end the role ended up going to Brooke Shields famously. And so, but I was called in for an audition. And um and my father wanted me to go and I was desperate to go and my mother wouldn't allow it. Um, okay. And that was one of the first big fights. It was one of the first big rifts with my mother because there was a real, you know, tug of war between my parents for influence over me. You know, my dad wanted me to be a chip off the old block and my mother wanted me to be anything but that. So all that got played out. And did she not want you to go because of the sexualized nature of the role or was it just that she thought you shouldn't be out of school or competing with her for attention or something like that? She, she had an issue. She, her stated line was that I would have a normal childhood. Um, she was really suspect of celebrity. Um, her father, my granddaddy, was a very successful early radio and television writer. He wrote for the Dick Van Dyke show and Donna Reed and, you know, all these different big shows at the time. So my mother had a, a lot of exposure, I think, to that world and was estranged from her father. And, and it is my suspicion that some dark things happened to her as a child that she never, um, fully uh, reckoned with. But anyway, so she was very afraid of me being exposed to that world. So okay. I didn't understand any of that at the time, but I do now. You're describing this world, though, where the kids are are playing in that 70s way. The kids are out running around and, until mm -hmm. dark and there's, they're on a pretty long leash, if any leash at all. But it's taking oh, yeah. place in Manhattan and among incredibly sophisticated people. I mean, you basically have teenagers or preteens who have adult lives in a certain kind of way, or they're having yes. sort of simulations of adult lives. This is a theme in my life was that my parents would fall in love with or and or bed the parents of my friends. So my best friend next door neighbor, her father ended up moving in with uh, my mother and being my sort of ersatz 
stepfather for a decade, um, thus ending the friendship between me and the daughter. Then twice in high school, my father slept with um, friends, parents. And then the second time he married my roommate's mother. (laughs) And Allie, my roommate, and I have been devoted sisters. I mean, it was one of the greatest gifts of my life. But at the time, obviously, it was very confusing. And yes, the sort of little adult syndrome. And I don't know how widespread this was in the 70s or if this was just the sort of quirk in my family. But my father very much wanted me to be an adult so that he could have me as his sort of wing girl, you know, his sort of sidekick. He valued intellect and conversation and being well-read and being sort of snarky and witty and all of that. So, of course, I did everything I could to be that. Um, And yeah, long leash. My God, I think I was mugged about 10 times in my childhood just because I was wandering around out in the city in the 70s, which was really dangerous back then. Again, the landscape of New York has changed so radically since I was a kid. But I did, for a time, live on this amazing street on 95th between Park and Lexington in a brownstone next door to my best friend, And these were just a few years right before the divorce, right? And it was, you know, the street was Al Hirschfeld and the Sardis lived across the street. And there, you know, I was babysitting Katie Royfe. And, you know, it was a really interesting mix of sort of, you know, highfalutin and also very just sort of dangerous and unsupervised. Someone recently pointed out that the thing about the 70s was that the sexual revolution was in full force, but the women's movement was still building steam. So women's agency hadn't yet caught up with the idea that we were in a sexual free-for-all or that a a sexual free-for-all had become a kind of cultural norm. So I wonder if if that's something that you thought about when you were writing the book in terms of the framing. Absolutely. And I think at one point I say in the book, um, you know, the problem was here was the sexual revolution and my mother and my parents, especially my mother was navigating it with the factory settings of the fifties, you know, the forties and fifties, you know, my mother was born in 1937. So I think it was really confusing for the women, our mothers, you know, um, to suddenly, you know, she had gotten married, she'd done all the right things. She'd married a good provider in a lovely church wedding, and she went about having her children. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's the sexual revolution. And she's caught up in this project of being a mother. And so the sexual revolution was unavailable to her, you know, that she had already made her bed. And, um, and And it wasn't the heady time, I think, for women that it was for men. I mean, in contrast, my father went out and just plowed them all, you know? I mean, he was 
you know, Mr. Goodbar. I mean, he was just looking for fun. And Even what, as and a married was, man, as a married man, like overtly. Well, the marriage, I have to say, you know, like, let's say the sexual revolution and the divorce stuff really got rolling in like 72, you know, seven to 74, you know, and my parents split in 76. So, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't really like in the fullest swing, you know, I mean, it was just sort of still a new terrain, I think. Um, but of course, men had greater license to explore their sexuality, if that's what we want to call it, mm-hmm. um, as then as they do today, you know? Yeah. So as a girl, as a teenage girl, as a young woman, did you see sexuality as just part of your sort of God-given right as a sophisticated person? Like, how tied up was it in this idea? You you have all these great moments where you're, like, seeing yourself as having a life of adventure, as if your life is, if, as if you're living in a movie of your own life. Yes. And that's something that I relate to totally. I think, honestly, I think, I feel like before social media, and I know I blame everything on social media, but you kind of can't avoid that. I feel like, I, I saw my life as a movie all the time. And I think a lot of people did. You kind of went through your days as if you're imagining yourself as if you're in a novel or there's a kind of like musical score yes. accompanying you or like you're seeing your kind of moments of your life. You're looking at them in a kind of montage sequence kind of way. And so mm. did you see your your sexual activity as just all tied up in this kind of sense of yourself as a cool person who had adventures? I, I, I think actually the better word is a, a sense of myself as a heroine. Yes. And I absolutely was starring in the movie in my head. Um, and, you know, partly you can say, oh, well, she was the daughter of a film critic. Oh, she was saturated in culture. And I was very, very, very front loaded with culture in my family. Um, and I'd seen all the sophisticated movies and I understood sex through film and literature. And my father was very open with me about that, about sex. I mean, without being predatory, he was in no way a predatory guy with his children. I don't know about with adult women he wasn't related to, but, um, but he, he was, it was very open and I had this sense of, I better get cracking, you know, like the, the value is to be a sophisticated adult. And even though I'm only 13, I, this is my agenda, you know? So I went and I lost my virginity when I was 13 because I saw it as something that was holding me back from the larger conversation that I wanted to be a part of. But in fact, what it was, this whole I'm, I'm the star of my own movie, is a, is a psychological attempt to sort of compartmentalize your experience, right? I was so traumatized by the abandonment I experienced in my family by the time I got to boarding school that I needed to understand my life, myself as a heroine, that that would keep me safe. And my life wasn't happening to me. I was just, it was just a movie of things and I could watch it from a safe distance and not have the feelings that I would have had 
were I to really be living in a primary way in the experience. Oh my God. That is so interesting. I, I, I think I relate to that a lot. I feel like, you know what? I feel like I can say this because my parents are no longer alive. Like I started smoking cigarettes when I was in college and I feel like just the act of having a cigarette, you know, just the ritual of it, sitting there contemplating life with that cigarette in your hand and you're just kind of staring into space. I feel like that was almost like a catalyst. Like that was where I started seeing my life as a kind of montage sequence. And Mm -hmm. it was that kind of, that ritual became like an organizing principle and a way Mm -hmm. to kind of um, take the edge off of experiences that might otherwise just be too upsetting or sad or embarrassing or whatever it was. Like it was, it was a, it was a filter. It was, it was, yeah, I'm just, I'm thinking about this out loud. And and you did a lot of cigarette smoking in this, in this book. There's a lot of smoking in my book. Yeah. (laughs) Although you started earlier. Yes. I started at, yeah, I started at 12, um, (laughs) but I didn't really get the habit going until I got to boarding school when I was 14. But, um, but yeah, I mean, cigarettes were like the, the baton being handed off in the relay race between adults and children in my world. Right. Like I needed to start smoking right away, you know, and I had nothing but approval from my parents because they had been smoking around me my whole life. And it was the sort of shorthand kind of a, uh, you know, I guess sort of a symbol of adulthood. Like I've arrived, I'm here. We're going to smoke together we're going to drink together. We're going to talk about sex, even though I am your 14 year old daughter. And I felt really good about that. You know, I felt love and approval and acceptance from primarily my father. And they thought that was good parenting because they weren't talking down to you. I think there was sometimes a sense in that period that, you know, treat, you know, be completely frank with children about, things like Mm -hmm. sexuality and just, you know, don't condescend to them because that's somehow like the equivalent of talking baby talk to a, somebody who's not a baby or something like that. And I have to say, you know, I mean, I I don't disagree with that, you know, as a parent, um, you know, I took a lot of that into my own parenting. You know, I've always been super open with my kids about sex and any questions and tried very hard not to, you know, to frame it in a way that was shaming, you know, I wanted to make sure that they understood that it was all fine and that the conversation was open. Um, But, you know, I think, I think what this book is trying to get at, and when I talk about the big hurt, you know, it's not romantic trauma that I'm describing. It is the hurt of just abandonment and of carrying this pain, this sort of unprocessed pain that your parents have given you, that was given to them by their parents, this sort of epigenetic shame Mm -hmm. and pain and trauma, and just sort of carrying it, this burden forward, not knowing that it is not entirely your burden, you know, that you're shouldering it for other people. And it was a crushing experience for me. And again, I did not really put it all together until many years later. Yeah. And, And what we're talking about when you talk about abandonment is primarily your mother just deciding that she was going to move away. Your parents get divorced. Mm -hmm. You 
get sent to boarding school. Was that at the time that your mother des- decided she was going to move to New Mexico or were you already uh, there? She moved, she moved to New Mexico my, after I was, uh, had gotten to boarding school. Okay. So I mean, one, right. And one of the components of this book is that you have these wonderful letters from your father uh, mm-hmm. that he's writing to you. And there are some letters that he's writing to your mother where he's, uh, sort of weighing in on your, uh, how you're doing in life and what your mm-hmm. problems are and, and what would be the best, uh, the best course for you and, you know, yeah. whether you should go, you know, to this, to this summer camp or this boarding school or whatever it is. So you end up going to the Buxton school, which is a mm-hmm. very small, co-ed boarding school in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Tell us how that was chosen for you and what it was like when you got there. So <laughs> before I had been sent to the Buxton school, I was sent away that previous summer to work as an au pair in London for my father's British publisher. And <laughs> I was at the age of 14 sent abroad to take care of a two-year-old girl and a two-month-old baby. Oh my gosh. I'm laughing because it's like, as, wow. as one does, as one, as, one, oh, as, as, as one gets sent away to work for one's father's yes. British publisher. Okay. Right. And I was paid for this. Five pounds a week was my salary, which in those days was about 10 American dollars. And I had knew nobody there. I mean, they were a lovely family. There's, it's, this is not a story about being, you know, in service to an abusive family, but I was way in over my head. And, um, and then, so I decided to solve the problem by shoplifting at Topshop down in Oxford Circus one day on my day off. I had no money and I just went in there. I bought a purse, legitimately bought a bag. And then I began to scoop up crap off the tables and shove it into the bag and walk out the door and set off the alarms, got pulled into the office. They didn't believe me that I was 14. The only identification I had was the family's library card, you know, (laughs) because I would take the kid to the library. And um, they ended up calling them and I got sent back to the States. And that's when I was told by my father, you know, your mother does not want you to go back with her. And we have a friend who has a friend who goes to this boarding school. It's supposed to be great. And we're, you're going here. And this was like July, you know? So, um, that's how I got just last minute shipped off to the Buxton school, which ended up being one of the best things that ever happened to me for a very long time, you know? Right. It's funny because when we first arrive at the school in the book, I'm thinking, oh no, this is terrible. This is going to be like an Oliver Twist kind of situation or just like, you know, Mm -hmm. boarding school goth or something, but, but you actually thrive at this place and, and you love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So tell us like family. Yeah. And, and, and so, okay. So tell us, you're going to tell us what eventually happened, but what is the relationship between the teachers and the students exactly? Because, you know, we we're we've already got a world in which Jeffrey Epstein is an incredibly popular teacher at, at Dalton and uh, the, the adults and the children are, are, you know, mixing pretty, pretty uh, fluidly. So what's, what's happening here? This this is a tiny school. I mean, a hundred souls, give or take a few, depending on class size. And when I say a hundred souls, that includes faculty on an old summer estate in the Berkshires in Williamstown. And it was a, Gorgeous, gorgeous spot. 
And the school, I mean, students and teachers, we all lived together. I mean, there was the main house, the main mansion, and then there was a gatehouse and a barn, all of which had been converted into dormitories. And then the teachers were your dorm parents, et cetera, and did it, led the activities and ate with us at every meal. So it was a very close, close community, which was fantastic for a kid who had been essentially abandoned by her family. So I came into that place and it was like a hippie wonderland. I mean, it was just so fun. Um, I started with um, being sort of circumspect and unruly and I smoked a lot of pot and I wasn't a very good student. But over the course of four years, I really found myself in that school. I became an excellent student I became an actress and I starred in all the plays and I headed up all the work crews. We had a work program there where all the kids did the school maintenance. Um, and you liked and that. We, I, you you actually I liked doing it. the manual labor. I think you said I that the only, the only manual labor you had done up to that point was taking the, the garbage uh, to the down, down the hall of the apartment building and putting it in the, in the, in the garbage shoot, yeah. trash chute. Yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, the really, heavy lift. There was very, there were, I, I like, I like chores and I like manual labor and I do to this day. Um, and I just, it, that school, I began to feel very connected and powerful and sort of happy, you know? Um, it was interrupted by every time there was a summer vacation my parents would figure out a place to send me that wasn't home. You know, they never wanted me to come home because my mother felt that I was her enemy and my father was very busy with his career and his love life. And, and they have new you know, relationships. Your mother has a relationship they both as well. had, yes. they, they were both working on their relationships. They just did not want their sullen, moody teenage daughter around fucking up all their fun. So, um, so I ended up going, being sent to places, you know, one summer I was sent to do summer stock theater. Another summer I went on this infinite odyssey camping thing. And every time I would be sent away, I would be stat raped by somebody. Because again, you know, I mean, and this is not specific. Wait, sorry, say years. what you mean by, by it's stat raped. Oh, I'm sorry, statutorily raped. Okay. I okay. was a child being fucked by grown men that I encountered in the world. And because I was a child, I was away from home. And now I was away from Buxton. And I had, I mean, I had nobody. And so I began to conflate sex and love, right? Like that to be in somebody's arms was the closest I could get to being kept, you know? And I mean, so it's, it's amazing because am I remembering this correctly? There's a scene where you're 15 and I think you're in New Mexico for a brief time with your, with your mother and you actually have a sexual encounter with a guy. You call him, you, you, you first you think he's a cowboy, but he's just a guy in a cowboy hat, which is a yes. great line. <laughs> Uh, and he's like 33 or something or yeah. 31 and oh you're God, yeah. 15 and yeah. you have sex with this guy. Yes. He gave me my first orgasm. In fact, well, that's um, actually remarkable. I have to say that for, for <laughs> a 15 year old, uh, that's, 
that's uh, he was, kind of yeah. a marvel at any number of levels, but that's another But story. yeah, um, yeah, I mean, and that was just, and again, you know, I was being a heroine in my movie, so I sort of chalked that up at the time to like, my God, I am a powerful seductress in the world, and this is my tangled web of romance, you know? I mean, I was sort of, that's how I, I sort of categorized it all in my mind, and and of course, none of these men were interested in me, you know, or wanted to keep me around. Um, so I just kept sort of re-experiencing the rejection um, over and over again with these men. And, you know, I, I really wanted to make the point in the book of, you know, what a child will do to feel connected, you know, and how they can make it seem something that is essentially you know, an act of violence, you know. I mean, I was forcibly raped a few times in my life, held down and fucked against my will. Um, but, you know, with a couple of these experiences, I went willingly into it. Like, I understood that that was, that sex was the commodity that I needed to exchange for closeness, momentary closeness, and belonging, and worth, honestly. And I would imagine, too, in high school, some of these young teachers are a hell of a lot more interesting than your male classmates. Especially, yeah, if you're wildly sophisticated, precocious girl, yeah, I mean, you know, boys were, I mean, I don't want to make it sound like I wasn't interested in boys, because in fact, I was interested in boys, and I tried to have boyfriends. Um, But again, you know, the boys, and they were always, you know, like I, my freshman year, I dated a senior, you know, they were never boys my very own age, because those boys were so young, they were just not. And you lost your virginity to a kid. Right? Am I remembering this right? I did. When you were thirteen, a, a kid who was a kid who was like two or three years old. Okay, so I yeah. just want to be clear. I don't want people to think that you no, no, no. I did not lose thirteen to an adult or anything. No, okay, I did yeah. not. No. Um. Yeah. So it was very. Um. You know. Again, I it, the time was more accepting and sort of promoting of you know adult child sexual encounters. Nobody looked at it very oddly. And in my school, it was going on right in front of us. You know, there were teacher students, teacher student infatuations being played out in front of the whole school. Um, There was this culture where I understood that it was okay for that to happen. So when in the spring of my senior year, I was seduced by the music teacher. I my first response was like this is normal and fine. This is just what happens, you know. And when we were found out and I was confronted by faculty about this, I was shocked that they were upset about it. Like I really had no idea that it was a serious problem. And so let's talk about your relationship with this teacher before this happened. So he was married. He was partnered. He was there with a Mm -hmm. woman and they were, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of the kind of surrogate parents for some of these kids. You were, or you were hanging out with them as a couple. Uh, Mm -hmm. So you knew this guy. Uh, And then 
the the way you depict his sort of he, he kind of he, he's really taken with you i mean at least for a couple mm-hmm. weeks or however long yeah. it was he you know he's sending you these love letters that are hilarious oh, and yeah. in, in retrospect um somebody yeah. who's completely uh emotionally I- immature and unhinged um but uh you know of course you you would you would buy this so uh, you 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 really like at the point that they asked you to or that you were called out on this, you had only been involved with him for like a week, right? It had been exactly a week from <laughs> which for which for a, for a for a seventeen or eighteen year old, that's like a year. So it's an eternity, I yeah. Know. But yeah, from his first, and it's funny because I have a little at a glance date book from that uh, time, right? And because I was the heroine of my story, I was taking notes. And I was like, I better write down the date of this this thing because I want to remember later. It's very strange. And this is also the product of being raised by writers, right? You know, although none, nobody in my family was a memoirist, you know, I understood that I was to turn these experiences into literature at some point. Mm. So, yeah. So, yes. Yeah, so the the teacher had showed up with his and we're putting this in air quotes, wife, right? my junior year. And they were a very sort of young, fun, metropolitan, bohemian couple. You know, he was the, uh, he was a composer. He was also working at Bennington College, college simultaneously with working at Buxton because the two were like 20 miles apart. Um, and then um, she was teaching French and I was in her French class and I adored her. My first crush was on her. You know, she just was continental and joyful and funny. And I just adored her. And my friend, CJ, to whom this book is dedicated, he and I fell in with them and became, all four of us just became very good friends. I'm not going to say that I ever knew him. I call him Henry in the book. His name was Randy in life. I don't think I ever knew him um, in any real way, even after our affair. But, um, but I was sure that he loved me, you know, I mean, and I, when he finally, we started hanging out a little bit, we went on a bike ride together. I, you know, I took some photographs of him for a concert he was giving and in that girlish way, and I mean, he was a gorgeous, sensitive, artistic man. I mean, what was I not going to have a crush on him? But I understood it as a crush. You know, I did not expect it to be reciprocated in any way. And then it was. And I described the moment in the book where I'm being offered, he's telling me he loves me. And I'm being, and it's a total shock to me. But I understand I'm being offered the thing that I have wanted all these years. Like I had wanted somebody to say that they loved me and wanted to have me. And it felt like such an extraordinary opportunity that even though I wasn't sure what my feelings for him were, I mean, yeah, I had a crush. I thought he was cute and cool and awesome, but I didn't know that. I had real feelings for him, you know, but I went for it because again, it felt like an opportunity. And you were ultimately asked to leave the school, even though this kind of thing was going on all the time. I mean, this was a just kind of. So when they found out about 
me and the teacher. They fired him immediately. And then they took me aside. And this was my beloved teacher, Pilar, but speaking for the administrative committee, said to me, Erica, we understand that, you know, legally we are obligated to you, that we cannot expel you because you are our responsibility. But it's six weeks until graduation, and we feel that you remaining in the school is going to be very upsetting to the other students and to the teacher's wife who wanted to finish teaching the semester, who it turned out they weren't actually married. They had posed as a married couple and had wedding rings made so that the school would hire them as a couple. And so it turned out that was a total sham. And the school had never really vetted them. And so in order to keep the wife comfortable and the re- everybody else at the school comfortable, it was suggested that I just go. And I never spoke to my parents. They did not come to get me. I never got on the phone with them, except for after the fact when I agreed to leave and I called my mother. Um, but they had the called day, your parents and told them what had oh, happened. They had spoken to my parents. Yes. Yeah. And my father was furious and didn't want to talk to me. And my mother said, oh, my darling, I'm so sorry. Come to Cape Cod, which is where she was living at that time. And she was empathetic and welcoming to me in a way that she had not been in a very long time. And it was wonderful and confusing. And I went down to the Cape. And to wait to get in touch with the teacher, we were, you know, it was a pre-cell phone age. So, you know, finding each other would would take a few days. Um, And I went to my mother's house on the Cape where I learned from her that she herself had had an affair with her college professor at Sarah Lawrence. And it was an affair that had sort of traumatized and shaped her whole life, although she would not ever use the word trauma. This is my reading of it. But it, you know, it had shaped her entire adult life. Between being having my heart broken by the teacher, just to wrap that story up, I went and lived with him in Vermont for six weeks that summer. and Which then is also remarkable. I can't believe this. Like, that's just still <laughs> incredible. What are you, 18 at this point? I had uh, turned 18, yeah, in February of that year. So this mm-hmm. is June, fall, the following Okay, June. and but you're living with him like you're, you know, like you're yeah. a couple, like you've, you're, you're he housekeeping. The, yeah. He came to the Cape and he met my mother and she loved him and sent me off in his car to go live with him in Vermont until it was time for me to go to Sarah Lawrence in the fall. This is Watkins. Welcome with Bridget Pettisee. I love hearing people's stories of resilience and grit. This is why I created this podcast. We are very excited to welcome Jim Gaffigan, Yasmin Mohammed, Glenn Beck, Tim Dillon, Abigail Schreier, Jeff Garland, Ayan Hirsia Lee, Sam Harris, Heather Hying, Jonah Goldberg, Ben Shapiro, Glenn Greenwald, Sarah Shahi, Colin Quinn. If there's a culture of victimhood, then let's tell stories of grit and survival. Subscribe and listen now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And as you're writing this book, the Me Too movement comes along. 
one of the most interesting things about this book is you really engage with the complexity of these relationships and of these power dynamics. You, you never, you, you know, you are, this is statutory rape, but we never really see your narrator self as a, a victim. I mean, that's a, that's a sort of reductive way of putting it. She, she is a victim, technically speaking, but I, I wonder, like, as you were working on the book and this was all kind of going on in the background in the culture, were you feeling, did you have conflicted feelings about the conversations that were happening around Me Too? Or, you know, because a lot of people started talking at that time, like, you know, there's the version of this that's playing out on the op-ed pages and, and, in, and in the media and on Twitter. And then there are the conversations people are having behind closed doors where women are acknowledging that it's, it's much, much more complex and, and frankly, a lot more interesting than what we tend to read about publicly. Yeah, I mean, I think what the part that we see is is the conflict, you know, the moment of conflict, like, you know, Harvey Weinstein groped me in his bathrobe, you know, whatever that moment was. Um, and I think that, you know, okay, great, let's anchor ourselves to the action. That is, that is a criminal action and should be punished um, accordingly. But at the same time, I think that, you know, what Me Too wants to include and doesn't include often enough is sort of how the echoes of that moment through a woman's life and how deeply we are shaped by these experiences and how many of us have these experiences. And I think that's been the most sort of eye-opening thing of Me Too and this sort of social cultural reckoning we're having, having with behavior that was condoned and accepted in the past. I wonder too, I'm curious what you think about this. This period of time, like let's say the late 60s into I mean, through most of the 80s, for sure. Do you think that those decades really saw a disproportionate amount of this stuff because of the dynamic that we talked about earlier, the way the sexual revolution was in full steam and the women's movement was kind of still finding itself? Like, I don't feel like we hear these stories taking place in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. Now, that's because there weren't as many girls in school. That's because they're... It's just there was a different kind of set of cultural norms. But do you think that this this happened a lot at this time and it didn't happen so much before that for whatever reason and it doesn't happen more now? It doesn't happen as much now because there's so much more awareness of it? Is there something about this little I think it is spasm of time? I think of no. I I mean, I I do think that, yeah, there was a sort of a cultural moment in Gen X. Or we are a generation that just got left to ourselves, you know, as, as many people are sharing about now, but, you know, it goes back. I mean, that's why I included this chapter I have in my book, a brief family history of teacher fuckers. Yes. You know, I am a third generation teacher fucker. My great aunt Frances in the early 1900s in Western Seattle was seduced by her English teacher at the age of 16. And in those days, people got married. She married him. And they were married, I think, for three years before she left him. 
Now, I was fairly close to my great aunt Frances as a younger woman, but this was long before I had processed anything. She died long before I would process my own experience around this. So, I mean, I have so many follow-up questions for her that I wish I could ask her. But, um, but you know, I think that this is a thing that was, I mean, you know, I think that older men have been predating upon young women since the dawn of time, you know, and that social mores around it are what have changed, you know. But I don't think that it's any less damaging. I don't think that, you know, as mature as girls are, and especially girls of our generation, again, who were being sort of overeducated and left to their own devices, right? So we had a lot of information, but not a lot of supervision that the, the girls of our generation, because we came of age in that moment and now we are in our maturity in this moment, are able to parse their experience and frame it in a way that my mother's generation couldn't, my great aunt Frances's generation couldn't, you know. It's just the social mores have changed so much. And thank God. Thank God, because I don't think it was ever okay. My great aunt Frances, my mother, myself, all of us, very, very bright, sophisticated, educated, strong-minded girls. You know, my great aunt Frances was reading Leaves of Grass uh, in her parents' house. And she was, you know, her father was a Methodist minister. Um, So... Uh, she was just, just, you know, starting to come into an age of that kind of awareness. I mean, if we think of Walt Whitman and, you know, what that sort of moment in, uh, you know, American or world cultural history is, you know, this sort of awakening to the self. And I think part of the awakening to the self that is continuing in this sort of interesting trajectory that we find ourselves in in this moment historically, um, which is a a time of general awakening, I think the Me Too movement is a really, really, just as the Black Lives Matter movement is a really, really essential piece of this sort of human conscious awakening that's happening. Speaking of generations, you went on to have two daughters. We see later in the book, toward the end of the book, you're taking your oldest child to boarding school. What's going through your mind at that time? Yeah, so at this point, I had two daughters who were born assigned female at birth, and my eldest is non-binary now. Um, but at the time, they, I was raising girls, and it was the experience of that. Um, that obviously made me re-experience my own childhood every step of the way. And it was really when my eldest was just about the age where my mother had turned on me that my awakening began. Um, And a, a lot of the book is me going, oh my God, I'm all I'm doing here is repeating the past. Like I couldn't stop doing that. Um, And one of those moments is when I drove my, child to boarding school. Um, And it was at their behest. They wanted to go. They had begged me. They found the school and they, I, 
you know, and I didn't think they could get in there, but they did. And so I did it because that's what they needed to have, have, but it was not lost on me, you know, and again, it just sort of jacked me back into that sadness of, you know, losing my family. Um, but in terms of my own kids and in parenting them, you know, again, you know, us Gen Xers, and I'm 64, so it's debatable whether I'm actually technically a Gen X, you know, but I feel Gen X. You, you, know? you, you seem my, very much like lived, one. We'll, we'll let you in. Yes, yes. My lived experience is yeah. very much not All a the hallmarks. experience. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, I think that like the difference we learned a lot of lessons from our own non-parenting experiences when we were kids. And, um, and I think that there's been a backlash there. I think our generation, you know, there's the helicopter mom and the tiger mom and all of that. Um, and now there's all these studies showing that, that the hovering parent is not necessarily the better parent, you know? No. Um, and do you think and- that, that Gen X, see, this is off topic, but just quickly, like I had this theory mm-hmm. that Gen X, we're such, I mean, I'm not a parent myself, so I'm speaking for others, mm-hmm. but like they yeah. tend to be overprotective parents because we're reacting. We're so angry at our own mothers for Ugh. making us latchkey kids. Absolutely. I mean, that's incredibly oversimplified, but. It's, I wonder if it is oversimplified, but it's, I think that it's absolutely true. I mean, it is true for me. Um, although I will say this, that I was not a helicopter mom by any means. I gave my kids a very long leash because just because I was lucky enough when early on, when I had my kids to put them in this beautiful humanistic sort of hippie preschool where I learned sort of good, some good parenting techniques that served me. Um, and letting the child just be independent was one of them. So thank God for that. But um, but I think uh, you know, as a general rule, yeah, I think we were we were scarred by that by the underparenting we received, and that we're seeing that culturally now. People trying to sort of stuff the genie back in the bottle by being you know just hovering all the time, and I think it just just as bad as neglect is, you know, it sets up as much, as many issues as neglect. So, and I'm not saying I turned out to be a very good parent either. I mean, I turned out to be a much better parent than I should have been given my own uh, childhood. But on the other hand, boy, did I fuck it up, you know, and I'm still learning and it's, and the rules keep changing around children and the the conversations our children are making us have around gender and sexuality. And it's fantastic. You know, I mean, I think it's really, really good, but I, you know, just like my parents' generation, like a lot of the time I'm like, I'm not quite sure I understand all this, you know, I don't know if I approve, but all right. You know, it's, you know, it's parenting is just a messy, terrible exercise and doomed to failure, if you ask me in general. Do you see progress, though, being made with respect to young girls, people who identify as girls, seeing their sexual selves as less of a currency than our generation did? Like, is that particular Mm. pattern on its way out the door? There are other things going on, but this yeah. kind of, the, you know, this thing, this, this dynamic that we've been describing for an hour and a half here, do you yeah. see it coming to an end? 
or is it still there? Because Ugh. we have this weird thing where there's hypersexualization online mm-hmm. and in uh, pornography yeah. and sort of aesthetically, but then we also have data showing that kids aren't actually having sex. So, yeah, I, it's funny. I mean, I don't know. I mean, here we are in the middle of hot girl summer, right? And, um, oh, and I forgot. I, I forgot it was hot girl summer. I'm, I'm late hot to the, uh, oh, this, okay. I could still get out there then. We okay. still get to, you know, tramp around in our white shoes until the end of still early September. <laughs> um, anyway, you know, I think that, I think that the culture of the objectification of female bodies and sexuality is still fully on at this point, you know, I mean, it's at full roar. And I think that that is, I struggle, you know, I've always, I've struggled for years now with the whole idea of owning your sexuality as a sort of conduit of female power. Um, Because I think until female sexuality is, disengaged from the male gaze that that that's a false power and um and i've and i've you know discussed this with both of my kids and you know to varying degrees of success you know i think that you know my for my eldest who has chosen to be non-binary and i think it's a really good choice i mean i think it really cuts off a lot of that noise when you, we identify as female, you know, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. and it sort of excuses them from that fray and they get to define themselves and their relationships with others along their own terms. Um, so, and I think that my youngest who is still just newly a woman um, is still struggling to define herself in those terms, you know, and on her own terms. And it's just hard to do. Well, Erica, thank you so much for speaking with me and congratulations on the book. Thank you, Megan. That was my conversation with Erica Schickel. In addition to The Big Hurt, she is the author of You're Not the Boss of Me, Adventures of a Modern Mom. She has taught memoir and essay writing at UCLA and in private workshops. Her work has appeared in the Los Angeles Times, LA Weekly, LA City Beat, Salon, Ravishly, Tin House, and the LA Review of Books, among other places. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. If you are not yet a Patreon supporter of the podcast, now is a great time to join, since you'll not only get ad-free, hear that? Ad-free, early access editions of the show, but full access to a brand new feature a video series I'm about to launch. I'm not yet entirely sure what this is going to be called. Maybe something like Unspeakable Extras, Unspeakable Unplugged. Not that, but that's kind of the vibe. Um, these are informal video conversations I'm having with different sorts of people about various topics. For instance, the mid-career pivot idea that I talked about in a solo episode this past summer. These conversations will be partly available to the public on YouTube, but if you want to watch the whole thing, you must be a mid-tier or higher level Patreon supporter. So go to patreon.com slash the unspeakable to join up and find out about it. My first conversations will be with people like writers Kat Rosenfield and Stephen Elliott, 
also professional basketball player turned writer turned entrepreneur, Paul Shirley. This venture is still evolving, so you can be part of that evolution by joining now. Patrons at all levels also get to participate in regular listener hangouts on Zoom, where we talk about the show and anything else that might come up. Again, that's at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. You can also learn everything you need to know about this show at its website, theunspeakablepodcast.com. That's it for now. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Offer valid for a limited time. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? You are not alone. If you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your whole family can begin to recover. At Recovery Centers of America at Monroeville, your loved one will be treated with care by expert addiction professionals, while family programming will give you support and healing so that you can recover as well. RCA accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now.